and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about the recent Franco-German proposal for an EU recovery fund and the question of whether Europe is about to have its so-called Hamiltonian moment on the path to fiscal union. Many people agree that the plan to raise 500 billion euros through common EU debt and to hand most of it out as grants, coupled with a big increase in the normal EU budget, marks an important shift in EU foreign policy. And to help us make sense of this, I have an all-star cast of ECFR council members. First up, from Copenhagen is Luca Fries, who is one of the co-chairs of ECFR and director of the Danish think tank Europa. Joining me from Amsterdam, we have ECFR council member Kuhn van Ostrom, who is a Dutch entrepreneur in the real estate and technology realms and a keen supporter of Europe and of ECFR over a number of years now. Finally, we have uh, Jean Pizani Ferry, who is joining us from Paris. He's a senior fellow at Bruegel and the holder of the Tommaso Padua Schioppa chair at the European University Institute in Florence, as well as being a professor of economics at Sciences Po and was a one-time aide to Emmanuel Macron. So thank you very much to all of you for joining. Luca, you have been following the ins and outs of the debates around the recovery fund for a long time now, going to various different places to cover all of the meetings in the last few months, virtual and real, that have led up to where we are now. Do you want to tell us what the main components of the Franco-German proposal are? Well, I think, I mean, from a Danish perspective, at least, it came as as a big surprise because there was a feeling that Germany was more or less an honorary member of the so-called Frugal Four. And uh, then on the 18th of May, France and Germany, Chancellor Merkel and President Macron managed to agree upon this compromise where for the first time for Germany, it is now acceptable that you will have uh, loans that will then be sort of distributed in from this recovery fund in a way where the various countries are not no longer obliged to pay back euro by euro. That's obviously a big change if you look upon the German policy. And what's even more surprising, I would say, also following German policy is that, well, I mean, you've seen more or less the entire CDU, so the Germany's Conservative Party, coming out in favor of the proposal. And also Wolfgang Schäuble, who was very critical, I mean, always looked upon as a very stingy politician, to put it very bluntly, he's sort of also in the rest of Europe. So there are 500 billion uh, euros in it. It's not entirely clear yet where the money's going to come from or exactly how it's going to be handed out. Well, and, and obviously, I mean, there are many things that we don't know. And that's also why it would be so important to see I mean, how what's a proposal by the Commission. And it's very clear already now that obviously there will be also there sort of interesting aspects of that. I mean, what's going to be the balance between grants and loans? That's going to be very important. And what's also, you could say, the various conditions that are linked to the money and also who's actually going to get it. I mean, that's also part of the overall debate that we don't really know. I mean, obviously, the proposal speaks about countries but it also speaks about areas within industry that are mostly affected by COVID-19. How much of it is a real step towards fiscal union? I mean, when people talk about fiscal union, it means all sorts of different things to different people. But typically, there are four main components. There's the ability to issue debt, to organise fiscal transfers, to raise revenue, and then a sort of degree of centralised governance. Does this really move the European Union much further down that path? 
Well, I mean, if you read sort of the interview with Olaf Scholz, the German Minister of Finance, I mean, he clearly seems to be thinking that it is an important step in that direction where he then used the infamous term, that's the Hamilton moment. That has already stirred debate, you could say, within Germany, because is that really sort of helpful at this particular stage? And is it also helpful when you look upon the fruit of fall, if you want to have a compromise, whereas the statement by Angela Merkel has been more to say, well, this will be time limited. And there's also a clear uh, limit to how much money will be spent, i.e. the 500 billion euros. So that's obviously very much part of the debate. But it's very interesting that the German finance minister actually used that term. So Jean, you're sitting in Paris. Emmanuel Macron has been talking from before he was even elected about the idea of refounding the European Union and has hoped that France and Germany could lead a refoundation of the European project. From Paris, how close is the Franco-German initiative to that original goal? I don't think we should be thinking in terms of original goal. I mean, the the situation is so much different. and. It's not the moment when you you want to push for ideas that were there before. It's a moment where, when you want to address the the problems as as they develop. And I think we were really in in a worrying situation in which, for obvious reasons, uh, the EU had not done much against the pandemic for reasons of competence, for reasons of trust of citizens in the you know, the idea that closing borders was the, uh, the best answer. But we, we saw also that uh, it could develop in a very uh, unhelpful way. And we saw also that in some respects, you know, the EU can help make a difference. It can help it make a difference for, for the vaccines if it gets together and uses its, uh, its potential. And it can make a difference also for, for helping countries that are hit the worst to address uh, the problem. So that's, I think, is, is a reaction by Macron and by, by Chancellor Merkel. And it's true that he didn't break any of his taboos. She broke taboos, German taboos, about debt and about transfers. And I think the reason why she did so is because of fact, because of the situation. And do you think that this is enough? Well, time will tell. We don't know yet. I mean, we don't know uh, uh, how things will develop. I think they, it is important to be able to, you know, front load spending, to distribute the spending according to needs, according to objective criteria, and not according to a sort of preset formula whereby you're getting your money back in a way. And it's important to be able to front load it to, to finance over time. So, you know, the, the logic, I think, is, is there. Now, will it be enough? We'll, we'll see. And how do you think the frugal states are going to be given an off-ramp to allow this to go through? Because it's obviously something that all 27 member states need to vote through if an emergency fund is created. I'm not able to assess the political reactions. What I'm able to say is that we're speaking of two different things. We're speaking of European public goods. And I think it's very hard to dispute the need for Europe to play its role in this crisis. Whatever can be done for research, for vaccines, for improving the situation from public health perspective is good for everyone, essentially, including making sure that your neighbor is better able to cope with the pandemic. Because 
if your neighbor is not better able to cope with the pandemic, you're going to pay a price for it and you're going to suffer from the consequences. And then the, the question of the sheer solidarity. I mean, the fact that surprisingly, this has been a very asymmetric shock. It's not a north-south divide. I mean, we have to remember that the country which is hit the worst is Belgium. It's not a southern country. It has uh, nothing to do with the, the policies that were conducted before. It has a lot to do with chance, with the fact that the virus came in a certain way and developed under the radar in a certain way until countries were able, governments were able to react. And I think in this kind of situation, you know, it's part of the treaty that there is a form of solidarity. It's still, in a way, a veil of ignorance because you know the situation today, you don't know the situation tomorrow, you don't know how things can develop. So we're not speaking of a one-way street. We're speaking of something that can help those which in, uh, are in the most urgent need today that may help others in the future. Yeah. Kuhn, you're sitting in Amsterdam in what is now post-Brexit, the sixth biggest member state of the European Union, but also probably the most important leader of frugality within the European Union. Uh, or frugalness. I'm not sure what the correct noun is. We can check that. But how is this plan seen in the Netherlands? Well, it's got some mixed results here. And when you read the newspapers, you can clearly see that everybody's a little bit afraid that the Dutch are becoming too frugal. It started already six weeks ago when the finance minister, Wopke Hoekstra, was criticizing the Spanish and the Italians and basically saying, guys, what have you been doing after the last crisis? And why did you not get your books in order so that you will be stronger in the next crisis. And why should we then be the ones paying for you when you've not done your homework? And he got so much backlash for those remarks that it became clear that the Dutch were standing alone and everybody knows that you have to find coalitions and work together. And so in the Netherlands right now, after this letter, also there was a little bit of a result where people were saying, hey, we also want to be friends in Europe. We want to work together with other countries. And although many commentators are really asking themselves, do we really want to have that fiscal union? They also are saying we do need to compromise. And is this letter now a smart thing as a next step to take? And what do you think the end game is then for the Dutch? The Dutch government is a little bit in trouble in the sense that there are elections coming up in March and the right-wing parties, mostly Geert Wilders, have a strong voice against more European integration. And I think that, that we all know that all our economies in Europe are going to be quite a bit in trouble. And therefore, it will be a difficult message that we're going to give more money to, to Europe. And therefore, Mark Rutte has a strong position to try to get the competition on the right a little bit under control by taking a tough message and try, at least in the Netherlands, for political reasons, to send that out. I think he wants to compromise. I think we want to still be a proud member of Europe. That compromise can have different shapes, but the jury is still out and it will be difficult also in the Dutch parliament to get something going because there is this feeling that so much work has been done in the last 10 years to get the Dutch finances under control. And as somebody said, why is it that a bus driver in the Netherlands has to work till 67 and a bus driver in Rome can go home with his pension a lot earlier? Is that fair? And I'm not saying I agree, but I do say that is a political item that the Dutch have to deal with. And how much 
do you think they can move? Because the Frugal Four published this counter proposal where they're talking about it as an emergency fund financed only by loans. So all the money would have to go back to the EU. Do you think that that is just the beginning of a negotiation? Or is that what they really think that they're going to push for? Because obviously, a recovery fund, if it's done within the European Union, needs the approval of all 27 member states. Yeah, I think there are two topics that we're talking about. And one topic is there's a crisis and we need emergency funding for that crisis. And there, the Dutch have a point where they say, hey, there is actually a lot of money that is already uh, dedicated uh, for all kinds of trouble that can come up. It has, however, a consequence, and that is that you have to share with Europe your household book and show them what your recovery plan is going to be like. And I think that the Southern European countries don't really like that. And then there's a second question. The second question is, what kind of budget are we going to have going forward? And is it going to be topped off on the the 1% or is that going to increase? And there is a real question that I think Schäuble indeed answered. Do we want to have more Europe? And there the Dutch government is clearly saying, hey, at this time we don't really want that. And we for sure don't want that to be connected to that first issue where it's unclear what the money that the Spanish, Italians and other countries are asking for, uh, how that is actually going to help them and what they are going to do structurally to reform their economies. So, look, you've been following Germany as closely as, as almost anyone and you're in and out of Berlin a lot. Were you very surprised that the German government ended up supporting this plan? Yeah, I mean... I was surprised that it ended up being uh, grants only and not loans. I thought that was a big step by Angela Merkel. But on the other hand, maybe we shouldn't have been that surprised because, first of all, Angela Merkel throughout the entire crisis kept on saying that, well, this was the biggest challenge for the EU and Europe since the Second World War. And there it's a bit difficult to say, well, everything has changed, but we maintain our present policy. She also kept on saying that uh, Germany can only uh, survive, to put it very bluntly, uh, if the rest of Europe also gets through this crisis. So I think there were some indications out there. And then as far as I've been able to gather, the very fact that obviously from a German industry's perspective, it is so vital that one can continue the export towards uh, Italy, Spain and so forth, so the single market. And you could also say that for Germany, reading the various opinion polls coming out of Italy, one can always discuss the opinion polls, but I mean, there were a couple of saying that almost uh, 40% were willing to leave the European Union. I think that was something that that personally uh, touched Angela Merkel. And finally, well, we're in a bit of almost ironic situation where Angela Merkel has been so much strengthened by COVID-19. President Macron has been weakened, but because of the fact that Angela Merkel is now so strong, she could actually then move on this particular issue and then help also France in what will be very vital, I presume, also for Emmanuel Macron, once he gets through this crisis and also at a certain stage has to think about his re-election, because he always promised that he was able to get Germany to move, and now it finally happened. How much of it do you think it was to do with the constitutional court judgment in Karlsruhe? I think that also played a role, yes, that it was difficult to keep on using the ECB road, so to speak, monetary policy. One also had to look into fiscal policy. And I think that it's also interesting that Germany, for the first time, has also launched all ideas, sorry, that one could imagine also changing the EU treaty. I mean, this is obviously not for now, but just the very fact that it's been mentioned. And that is something that is noticed in a country like Denmark, because, well, people kind of thought, okay, also this conference of Europe that is supposed to be organized now, people thought nothing's going to happen there. But now suddenly you see this engine 
uh, kicking back in of, of Germany and France. And that is obviously something that changes also the overall negotiation framework for Denmark. So Denmark and the Netherlands are two of the active members of the Frugal Four group, but they're, they're in quite different positions. I mean, the Netherlands is in everything, has no opt-outs from anything at all. It is now one of the bigger economies. You have Prime Minister who has been there for quite a long time now, has been part of all the crisis management over the last decade. How is Mark Rutte thinking about his role now? Because increasingly... He's gone from being someone who seemed to be very focused on on domestic politics within the Netherlands to being, along with Angela Merkel, one of the, the kind of long-standing leaders on the European stage. I think that, that one of the most complicated things for the Dutch is that the British are no longer part of this debate. And I think that the Dutch were able often to sometimes look to the East and see a German partner and sometimes to the West and see the UK. And the UK, of course, would have said no to this German-French plan Maybe only because it was a German and French plan. And the Dutch are now looking a little bit for a new role. Found a role in the leader of some of the smaller countries. It's now called the Frugal Four, but the Hanseatische League that was a name that we heard before. And they're trying to position themselves there. Mark Rutte has to take a decision whether he's going to do the next elections in March. And I thought there was a real chance that he wouldn't. But now with the virus around us, I think everybody wants stability and there will be huge pressure on him to continue for another four years. And it's more than likely that he will win that election because he has the same thing that Merkel has in Germany and that is that the virus has been good for him in, in a political sense. He also wants to leave a legacy in Europe, but it's a little bit unclear what that could look like, especially because the political space that he gets in the Netherlands is really small and he has positioned himself so much as almost anti-Europe uh, we all know that he is not really anti-Europe, but in the communication to the voters he has, that it's going to be not so easy for him to make a big move here. One big issue which this does raise and which has not, I think, fully been talked through yet is the relationship between countries in the Eurozone and those outside of the Eurozone. The German government has opposed all of Emmanuel Macron's attempts to, to try and distinguish more clearly between the two and to develop a big independent Eurozone budget. Look, how is that seen in Denmark, the fact that it's the EU27 that having to support the recovery fund and that it's the whole EU budget which is being used to relaunch the EU rather than something specifically for Eurozone members? No, I would say there is support for that if you look at on the view from the government's perspective. But obviously, I mean, for the ordinary citizen, I mean, there are some question marks there. Why should should we as a non-Eurozone member actually then participate in an EU pot, so to speak, that is then applied for all Eurozone uh, countries? But it's not really a huge part of the debate. I would more say what people are discussing here is, is whether this coalition of the Frugal Four will actually sort of be able to, uh, to stay together, so to speak. I mean, how united is it at the end of the day? And there people are pointing to the fact that, well, you have two countries that are members of the Eurozone and two countries that are not. And there is a feeling in, in Copenhagen, at least, that hmm, eventually it could be Denmark and Sweden they're standing sort of completely alone there in this overall negotiation because there is sort of the overall expectation that at the end of the day, Netherlands and Austria will, for them, it's necessary to be part of a compromise with the Eurozone countries. 
And frankly, the very fact that we have had this coalition of the frugal four, that they have over the weekend been the silent four, where, not, where they have basically not explained their policy or defended it, that has also, in this country, sort of led to the sort of conclusion that most likely what we'll see is that we're now moving into the compromise phase. And one can already now see a number of sort of areas of the, of the landing zone, I mean, to have a balance between sort of loans and grants and to have conditions when when you are when you get money from the recovery fund also to underline that most of the money would have to be spent on the digital area or the green tech area and so forth and obviously also most likely maintaining the rebates for some of the net contributors so there are many areas where you can already see the landing zone. So Kuhn, you're obviously in the heart of the debates amongst the business community in the Netherlands and in Europe. How much pressure is Dutch business putting on the government to go along with some of these measures rather than to play the blocking role which the Dutch government's been playing so far? I think that the Dutch entrepreneurs, like the German business community, are quite worried about Europe and are really more pro-Europe than maybe the government is or maybe that the population is because they clearly see the big advantages for the Dutch economy. And I think that going forward, there will be more and more pressure on the government to come up with a good solution here and not position the Dutch on the sort of outskirts of an anti-Europe feeling in that uh, coalition. And I think that uh, that is helping. At the same time, Dutch companies are also very busy with the virus and therefore maybe not so much busy with interfering with the, the political side. And I think everybody here on the business side is basically hoping and expecting that there will be a compromise in the next weeks and that they will find each other. Maybe also there's a little bit of feeling that Mark uh, Rutte might have a point by saying, hey, there is money available. What is now exactly the reason that we have to have a new pot of money? But most importantly, they want to keep things together. And they want to make sure that what, what I earlier described, as this, this reaction of Bobke Hoekstra, our finance minister, that got so many angry reactions and where really the Dutch were standing alone, that we don't move ourselves in a, a one-party against the rest kind of position and uh, completely be left over and where maybe even people in Italy and Spain might not want to buy our products anymore. So quite pragmatic and pro-European. Jean, we're obviously waiting for the European Commission to fill in the details about how all these plans could work in practice. There are some fascinating questions about you know, how the European Union could end up raising money if it does actually get the right to increase it, its own fiscal resources, but also how the whole question of borrowing money might work, whether you might get what kind of bonds the EU might be allowed to or might decide to, to raise for the crisis. Do you want to talk a bit about what you think the main options are at this stage? You know, the, the important thing is the possibility of having a fund aside the, the, the budget that makes it possible to borrow. That's not strictly speaking part of the MFF, the multi-annual financial framework, but that's you know very strongly linked to it and that can help finance spending that's part of the EU overall budget spending. So in a way, it's a, it's a way around something that we thought made the problem almost intractable, which is the requirement that the EU budget is balanced each and every year. It's a temporary mechanism. I think it should be so. I mean, if there were to be a decision to make it possible for the EU budget to be uh, to be in deficit, 
it will require a whole framework. It will require a need to be able to raise resources. We're speaking here of something that's limited in time, that's beside the EU budget, and that normally should end. And I think that's rightly so, because we we're coping again with an extraordinary emergency with extraordinary means. It's not a way to transform the EU budget. So you don't think that this is going to open the door for a new normal afterwards in terms of how the EU works? Well, I hope it, it won't, because I hope we're coping with something exceptional. I would be in favour of having an EU budget with own resources, but that would require fundamental transformation in terms of you know, taxing power at EU level. And that would be a huge step in the design of the EU. That's not what we're speaking of. So why do you think Olaf Scholz has talked about this being a Hamiltonian moment? I think there has been a bit of an abuse of this idea of a Hamiltonian moment. Again, the Hamiltonian moment was about the past debt. And that's precisely what we're not doing. We're not speaking of past debt. We're speaking of a way, pragmatic way to finance spending that's uh, needed today to cope with an emergency. That's has nothing to do with um, assuming, as Hamilton was saying, the, the debt incurred in the past by different member states. Do you two also have the same view of this as a very limited thing? Yeah, I would say so. And I think it's also very important to underline the fact that this is an extraordinary moment. And that's the point. And sort of now already to look upon this as how it will transform the European Union. I don't think that's very helpful to get a compromise. I'm not sure that any Dane here is very much aware of the American history, at least not if I look now on the on the main pedestrian street in Denmark. But the very fact that also Charles certainly starts mentioning sort of that, well, the SPD in Germany had support the United States of Europe all the way through. I mean, that's not going to help the negotiations. So I think what we need now is to really have a pragmatic discussion once the Commission's proposal gets out. And Kuhn? Yeah, I think that's the same thing. And at the same time, so hugely important here as well is that Bundesverfassungsgericht in Germany that basically said, hey, ECB, maybe you're going too far. And that means that the ECB can't do all the work anymore and it has to be the countries working together. And I think also in the Netherlands, some of the commentators are saying maybe this is a great moment because we really have to set a new strategy for Europe and we have to have that debate. How much Europe do we want? What does it look like? And how far does it go in respecting each other and working together? And it could be that the Dutch government there has a very different view than some other countries, but to let the ECB in the back do all the, the dirty work and not really discuss that and make that out in the open will in the long term hurt us. And we think that it might be a lot better to, to discuss it now and set a clear path and then move forward. Like I said, the only real difficulty that I see is that in the Dutch political scene, it might be not so easy for our prime minister to, to compromise now and move forward. There's really tendency in the Netherlands to then say, what kind of Europe do we want? And should that be one where we are spending in the eyes of some people too much money? I I don't personally believe that, but there is a huge group of voters that that might then go and vote for parties that are really anti-European. Maybe we can end with that question. You know, in some people's minds, the European Union has suffered from a a kind of virus of populism and Euroscepticism which seem to be taking over the whole continent and making these sorts of ideas look like they're impossible. And some people think that it's taken a real virus to end the the populist virus. A lot of populist parties that were doing very well before COVID-19 now seem to be struggling to get public support. And this step forward by the German government seems to be 
something which also was unthinkable six months ago and that there might be a kind of retreat into the future. But what you seem to be saying is that this might actually unleash an even bigger wave of Euroscepticism rather than curing it. It does. And at the same time, sometimes you have to go through a tough moment like that to then find a new identity and move forward. One of the commentators the other day was also saying something that hit me. And that was, if you then decide that you don't want to have a situation where one country is giving money to the other country, that is also not happening in the USA. It is the central government, Brussels, so to speak, that would then raise money and allocate that. But then you would have to have more direct democracy to make that work. And then I have a big question to the French government. Would they be willing to hand over some of their powers to a new enlightened Brussels that could raise their own money, that could do taxes, and then could also give money to those regions that really need it or to vaccines or other places? And maybe the fear of the smaller countries is also a little bit of fear of some of the big countries working together and making clear what is going to happen going forward. Maybe there's also then a wish for a different kind of democracy in Europe. Do you think that that might come out of this whole process for the future of Europe, Jean? Yeah, I think that we have to listen to this type of concern. My, my main answer would be, we've got to demonstrate now that it's not a battle between those who are in favour or anti-EU or in favour of different versions of, of EU integration. It's a battle about this crisis and how the EU can help make a difference uh, in this crisis. I think voters in the end, citizens, are very pragmatic. You know, they're hyper-realists. They want to see which entity is able to help in this kind of situation. So far, the, the EU hasn't done so well. I mean, in terms of where it had competence, in terms of, of research, in terms of information, coordination of the, the health, the public health strategy, in terms of making sure that we can start building collective security system for health crisis. All that is to be done. And if it works, if the EU proves useful, maybe citizens who are skeptical today will change their mind and will see it differently. If it's not useful, I mean, if it ends up being one of those terrible battles about purely distributional issues, nothing to do with public goods, nothing to do with efficiency, all about horse trading, then it will be terrible for the EU. And so I think that's that's a test we're facing now and a test in front of all public opinion. I'm not saying the French public opinion is so much more in favor of the integration. It's not. It's not in Germany, it's not in Italy, you know. Uh, we Really, it's a moment where we have to demonstrate what the EU can bring to the solution of the problem. So we'll come back and see how this pans out in the weeks and months ahead. But there's one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Look at what's on your bookshelf at the moment. Oh, I'm rereading uh, Helmut Kohl, so a biography uh, written by Hans-Peter Schwarz. And obviously, because it's the 30th anniversary of German unification, 
but also because it suddenly struck me that, uh, well, just before the Berlin Wall came down, well, there were clear sort of rumours that Kohl was history. And I thought that was that his political career would end. And I see some similarities to Chancellor Angela Merkel with the COVID-19 crisis. Before the crisis, people thought that, well, that her future was definitely about to end and uh, or history. And now things look kind of different. I don't think she's going to run, but uh, I think it is interesting because it also creates a better room, a more a room for manoeuvre for her also to more focus upon her European legacy as we've been touching upon this particular podcast as well. Okay, what about you, Kuhn? I'm uh, uh, reading at the moment a book by Robert Iger, the former CEO of Disney, and it's called The Ride of a Lifetime. And it's the amazing story of how he built Disney into the huge company that it is today. And I find it super interesting to see that kind of company is successful in, in the US and that in Europe, we don't really have a company that is active in all these countries and then can make a content that is also recognizable to the world. And so uh, an interesting read for an entrepreneur. And what about you, Jean? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have much time for books these days, but I, I'm, I'm reading a lot of papers and I just came across an interview by, a long interview by Larry Summers in the, the American Interest, in which he develops the way his thinking has changed about a range of issues from capitalism to, to globalization. And I think, you know, it's interesting to see how this crisis is reshaping views of, of people on a number of things. And that's an opportunity not to be missed, really, to think about what's really important, what we've learned, and what should remain of what we've learned in this crisis, including on the beliefs some people had. And, you know, if someone believed in globalization, that was probably Larry Summers. So the fact that he's changing his views is indicative of, you know, the magnitude of the changes we're facing. Fantastic. We'll put up links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let your friends and family and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, by heading to whatever platform you use to download the podcast on and giving us a good review and a rating. But for now, from Luca Fries, Kuhn van Ostrom, Jean Pisani-Ferry and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Gabriela Valodskreiter. Thank you very much, everyone. That was great.